Good morning. And good to see you. Love Christmas music. And uh, love to hear you sing Christmas music. It's great. Uh, we are going to be in back in Matthew. We've been in Matthew this fall. And uh, we're going to be back in it for this last Sunday of Advent. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you're here and you're visiting, first off, welcome. If this is your first time or maybe second or third time, I just want to say... Again, that we're very glad you're here, and uh, if you have a question about something here that we do on Sunday mornings, or life of the church, or something related to child care, or whatever, love to talk to you, answer your questions, let us know how we can be helpful. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, you can just follow what I'm preaching on from the bulletin there, Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Uh, I, this is ridiculous to admit this, but at the age of 48, I'm finally reading a biography of a U.S. president. I've, I've never read a biography of a U.S. president. There's only 40-something of them, so, you know, n- none to pick from. But I'm finally reading uh, one called The Art of Power by uh, John Meacham. It's a biography of Thomas Jefferson. Some of you may have heard of it. And um, maybe a fourth of the way into it. But there's a statement that John Meacham makes at the beginning, and uh, he's a very capable historian, already fairly prolific and, and this sounds like stating an obvious point, but it's, it's not obvious. He says, all right, at this, and he, again, early in the book, he says, look, remember, when all these things are happening, Thomas Jefferson doesn't know how all this turns out. And, you know, it's obvious that you know, we don't know the future, but when, when you're reading this from our vantage point, you can slip into feeling like, oh, he knows that the United States is established, and he knows that he'll be the uh, third president of the United States. And he knows that he'll be on a coin, you know, and he knows there'll be a Jefferson Memorial. He doesn't know any of that, and it's tenuous at best. I mean, where I just left off reading, he was just elected governor of Virginia, and there are British forces coming at him from all directions. And if I didn't know how it turned out, and I was just going to guess from what I'd read so far, my guess would be that the British forces regained the colonies in this little experiment failed, if, that, if that's, all you, that's all he had. And that's one of Meacham's points, is that he lived in uncertainty, not knowing how these things would turn out. And I, th- that is a great little template to bring to this passage. Uh, this is a go-to sort of passage that we, that we renew attention to during, uh, during Christmas time, and, and that's appropriate. But what I want you to remember is that this, this man that we're about to look at, Joseph, and it's really, I say it's fun to give him some attention. And uh, now I don't think we intentionally neglect him, but we tend to just focus so much more on Mary. But I want to look at this man, Joseph, and I want you to think about the fact he's never heard of Christmas. He has never seen a nativity scene. There is nothing in the world named St. Joseph this or that. He's a Jewish man uh, with real feelings and real uncertainty and real limitations. And what we're about to read about is a real man just getting the kitchen sink thrown at him by God. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we would pray even in in line with what Jake said earlier that we don't want to just do what we do or sing what we sing or talk about what we talk about out of nostalgia or just tradition, but we really want to hear you and listen and revere and be transformed. And so we pray that your spirit will be at work in us through your word, even right now. Even for many of us, a very familiar passage, would you open our ears? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, when, uh, when I was pretty young, I know it was during the 70s, um, my family was visiting some relatives in Dallas, Texas. And some of these relatives, you know how you have some relatives and you don't know how they're your relatives? You just know that they're your relatives. So some of these were those kinds of relatives. I know they're on my dad's side, but that's all I knew. And um, this was during the 70s, and there was a huge yo-yo craze in the 70s, and I was, I was riding that wave big time as about a 9 or 10-year-old. So I, I was working my yo-yo a lot, and... Um, and so we went to go see these relatives, and there was a, a I, I, I at that time was maybe nine or ten, there was a little boy, can't even remember his name, and he, was, he, he saw me take out this yo-yo, and so I walked up to him, and you know you could do the thing where you, you fling it down, and it, it just kind of you know, floats, and then rides back up the string, so I came over to him, and I did that, and it just, it just floated above the ground, and then shoo, back in my hand, and he looked at me, and just went... And of course, I, I, I was already bad with younger children, so I, I, I froze. And I realized what happened was he had never seen an object drop and float and then go back up. And it freaked him out to the point of screaming. How could that possibly, you know, I don't understand that, so how could that possibly be? And I'll tell you, I think that that thing never goes away in us. We just get more sophisticated about it. Because everybody in this room could tell their story about how, and it may have been like how the, in the past day, but definitely big time in 2015, things came your way. Now, let me hit the pause button for a second. I'm not assuming that everybody in the room already believes in God or believes in everything that the Bible says, but many of you do. 
So let's say for those who do, who really like believe in the supernatural. And man, the, here's the interesting thing about anything related to Christmas. It just hurls the supernatural at you. Yeah, virgin birth. Explain that. We'll get into that in a second. But if you believe in God, that He's real and He exists and He has all authority and He, he controls everyone and everything, all His creatures and all their actions, as the catechism says, then that means that these confusing things that come into your life are at God's hand. And we may, we may not scream audibly when they happen, but when He brings these things into our life and we think, I have no idea how that could possibly be for my good. I don't know how possibly that could be good for my life or anybody else's life. I can think of like a thousand logical reasons why it would be good for you to take that away. And he doesn't take it away. And we're confused. And we've gotten sophisticated not, enough not to scream, but maybe what we do is we just stop talking to him. Or stop liking him. That's confusion. That's, that's how we're responding to confusion. Why would you do that? I don't get it. And if I don't get it, it must not be valid. Okay, I, go back to Joseph. I want you to think about, we know how the story turns out. We've had lots of Christmases and nativity scenes and sung about him and sing St. Joseph on this and that. And he's never had any of those categories and he is getting the kitchen sink thrown at him. So I, I want to think about a real person's confusion. He doesn't know he's in Christmas, but what we would call at Christmas. And here's what I want to look at, just two things. Joseph's call and Joseph's God. All right, Joseph's call and Joseph's uh, God. First off is his call. But first off, what do we know about Joseph? I know the famous one is that he's a carpenter. But what do we actually know about this man? There's not a ton written about him. This is one of the reasons... You, I mean, this is one of the ways you can see that the Gospels are not biographies. It's a different kind of genre. It has this agenda that it wants to get to. So you don't get a lot about Jesus' dad. That's pretty important. What do we know? A couple of things I want to point out. One is that he is from the line of David, like the famous Old Testament David, King David. Look at what the angel calls him in verse 20. It says that Joseph is thinking about all these things, and behold, and Matthew uses that a lot, saying, look at this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, now, every other time in the Gospel of Matthew when the phrase the son of David is used is talking about Jesus. But the reason that that applied to Jesus is because verse 20 is true. And this may not sound like a big deal to us. The opening words of Matthew states Jesus' name and the first thing Matthew tells you about Jesus is that he's the son of David. Opening claim. It's because, verse 20 is true, he's a direct descendant of David. That's why he went to Bethlehem to register, if you've heard that text, because that was the city of David. All right, very important. Second thing is this, he was poor. Now, the text doesn't say that. How do we know that Joseph and Mary were poor? If you look in the Gospel of Luke, it says that when they did this thing that... Jewish parents were supposed to do when they present their child at the temple. They did it with accompanying sacrifices. And in the Old Testament, there were different options for what you could sacrifice for your firstborn 
uh, child, but the firstborn son, the poorest people could bring two doves. Guess what Joseph and Mary brought? Two doves. Can't afford the nicer animals. They were low-income people. Joseph was low-income. One other thing is this, and this is really the point I want to unpack, is that the text says that he was a just man. And the, the word that's used there in the Greek is translated in a lot of other places in the, in the New Testament that he was righteous. And one way you see that is, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to go out and do nice things for people, like if you've got money in your account and you're feeling good, and you've got lots of extra stuff to share anyway, and you've got like a nice car to drive around and do nice things for nice people. That's one thing. But the real litmus test of character is if you uh, encounter great pain or confusion. And man, I don't don't say this irreverently, God threw the kitchen sink at Joseph, and he showed himself to be a just man. A righteous man. Now, now, what did that look like? First off, um, kind of the obvious is that his betrothed is pregnant. Now, um, the way this worked in his day is not like engagement in our day. If someone's engaged and they break their engagement, that, that's not to diminish that that can be and probably would be incredibly painful, but it's not a change of your legal status. But, and we have to use these old terms because we don't really have something like it in our culture. But if you were betrothed, that was a change of your legal status. You hadn't married yet. But look, look in verses, uh, let's see, 18 and 19. Look at what, what uh, they're called. Verse 18. When his, Mary, uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and look at what it says in verse 19. Her husband, Joseph, legally, even though they haven't married yet, He's considered her husband. Uh, and do with this what you want, but uh, from the little bit of research that I've seen, that the norm would kind of be that maybe she would get betrothed at around 12, gulp, or 13, and um, that the, uh, the man would be like maybe around 18. We don't know for sure, but there can pretty much guarantee she's very young. And she's found to be pregnant. And the language is not like they were found out in this thing. It's just that it starts being evident. This woman's pregnant. Now, I I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. No one in this account has ever heard of the virgin birth. Ever. No categories for it. And quite frankly, we have heard of it. And we've got a complete Bible. And theologians have reflected on this for 2,000 years. And we still don't understand it. So here's what you've got. You've got this man. And he probably doesn't know her that well. You know, we're used to dating and where guys and girls can have lots of unsupervised time. That's not how it worked for a Jew in the first century. This would be arranged probably by the two sets of parents, but you wouldn't leave this couple alone for long stretches of time. So he probably doesn't know Mary super well, and she shows herself to be pregnant. What does he have to think? 
And the, the, the phrase in here that jumped out at me more than I've ever noticed it before is verse 20. Is when he realizes that, says, he considered these things. Man, no kidding. He must have churned. And again, we don't know all the details, but Mary may have been the most exciting thing that he anticipated in his whole life. I'm sure that she was. And this bomb goes off. And, uh, And this really puts him in the horns of a dilemma because he has to divorce her because of just kind of the way the law worked. But he doesn't want to shame her. The norm would be that you would divorce sort of in front of the whole community. But there was provision in Jewish law that you could go to community leaders, maybe you know, town elders or whatever, and you could privately divorce. And, and so, and this, man, what, what a picture of character that when he, when he thinks that she's absolutely at her worst, he doesn't want to shame her. And, you know, I'm not going to preach a sermon about this, but if you're here and you're married, think about just when, when you're married to someone, gotcha moments are so delicious. Like when I get to point out how you failed and I get to feel even better about myself in comparison. And man, he, I mean, he was holding kryptonite at that point and he doesn't want to shame her. And so he's thinking about these things. Now he, okay, here's the amazing thing. God sends Joseph an angel. <laughs> if, if you want a little window into God's kindness and love to Joseph as he throws the kitchen sink at him, he sends more angels to Joseph than I think anybody in the Bible. Doesn't have to, but he does. He sends him an angel in a dream, and he says this, Joseph, he knows that Joseph's thinking about this divorce. Don't do that. Take this woman as your wife because the child in her is from the Holy Spirit. All right, do you all really understand what that means? Do you think he really understands what that means? Essentially, what he heard, he doesn't have a doctrine of the Trinity. What, as a first century Jew, he heard an angel say to him is that the child in your betrothed is from God. Everything clear? And again, like not to be irreverent, not to be disrespectful, but you could almost imagine Joseph thinking, oh, okay, good. I was scared for a minute you were going to say something hard to understand. What does that even mean? It's confusing. He's never heard of the virgin birth, and he doesn't know for sure that Mary, at this point, is a virgin. But here's what God reveals to him. And the angel says there's two things that you need to do. He doesn't explain everything. He doesn't explain the doctrine of Christ. He doesn't explain... Uh, atonement. He doesn't explain what we call Christianity. He says, Joseph, do two things. Take Mary as your wife and name the boy Jesus. Those are the two imperatives. And what does it say in verses 24 and 25? When Joseph woke from sleep, he gathered his friends and talked it to death. No. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now think about that. 
and I, I don't want the point of this to be, wow, Joseph was an obedient man, and we should be obedient people too. Let's close in prayer. The point of the sermon is never to be, hey, be like this wonderful person. But he is showing us something. I mean, think about this. Sometimes the way Christians talk is in terms of, you know, the Bible is where the answers are. And when you encounter hard things in your life, we, you know, we need to go to the Bible because that's where the answers are. Now, that is true. But what do we mean by that? I mean, is what we mean, let's say, for instance, that let's say you're in an incredibly difficult time with family. And I bet if I said, hey, raise your hand if you're in an incredibly difficult time with people, this forest of arms would go up. Someone just actually did raise their hand over there. This could be distant family. This could be child. This could be sibling, whatever. All right, if you're in this incredibly difficult time with your family, go to the Bible for your answers. And I think the way we say that, or the way we teach that sometimes, is that someone's going to open the Bible and they're going to know just what to say to that family member. And then the second thing they need to do. And then the third thing they need to do. But what if you open the Bible, like to Psalms, and over and over and over what it says is, wait. Wait upon the Lord. Yeah, and then what? Wait. I don't like that action step. Wait. One of the famous passages in God's Word about God's Word, this is in Psalm 119, the longest psalm, and it's all about God's Word. It says that your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But what kind? Is, is it like the, the mega uber flashlight that I mentioned in last week's sermon that I could have used in the woods when I got lost? You know, one of these that you can buy now and you turn it on and it's putting out street lights half a mile away because they think it's daytime now. Lights up the entire like landscape. What would a lamp be like in the psalmist day? You know, oil lamp, handheld lamp. How much light would it give you? Next few steps. Lamp to my feet, maybe a few yards out. Light to my path, maybe a few yards out. We want God to come along and say, I'm going to explain everything. I'm going to explain my rationale for doing this. I'm going to explain how it's going to end up. I'm going to explain how I'm going to use this thing in your life. And he typically doesn't operate that way. He says, trust me, and I'm going to tell you what you need to know. He doesn't come to Joseph and say, let me explain the doctrine of Christ. He says, take the woman as your wife and name this boy Jesus. So he does. How how could he trust God like that? Again, he wasn't handed Scripture. It became Scripture. But he is handed a message through a messenger from God. He is given God's words. How can he trust God like that? Who is Joseph's God? Look at, look, at verses, uh, look at verses 22 and 23. And, and again, remember, Joseph doesn't have what we call a doctrine of the Trinity. So when he hears this child is from the Holy Spirit, he just hears this child 
is from God. The one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then look in verse 23, and, and here, Matthew does something that he loves to do. Ten different times in his gospel, he quotes what we call the Old Testament and says, this was fulfilled. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. So here, here he goes. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's about to quote Isaiah. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the angel didn't say this, but Matthew is explaining it to us, and he's interpreting it, and he says, When the angel came to Joseph, and this thing happened, this was fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah about the son is going to be born to a virgin, and his name is God with us. It doesn't mean his personal name. It means his calling, his identity. Think about what Matthew's saying, is that you've already learned in this account that an angel comes and says, "Um, Joseph, your, your baby is from God. But what Joseph, I'm sure, can't understand at that point, but that we get to know is not just, Joseph, your baby is from God. But Joseph, your baby is God. Your baby is God with us. And I want you to think about the weight and the power of the word with. Because there's all kinds of different ways to imagine God being with you. Like, if, if you were really, really just financially in a tough place, really strapped, and $100 showed up in the mail for you anonymously, unexpected, anonymous, $100. If you did believe in God, you might say to somebody, man, I, I just, I, I, I didn't know what to do. And this money showed up, and I could just really tell God is, is with me. That's true. But what do we mean, these with me? Like, in a vague way? It's like if somebody says, hey, you know, Brian, I've, I've had this happen before. Um, hey, my family's going to be out of town, or we're on vacation, or we're going to the lake this weekend, but, you know, we'll be at Downtown Presence Spirit on Sunday. When somebody tells me they're going to be at Downtown Presence Spirit, what are they telling me? They're not going to be here. <laughs> and I don't think I want to preach to disembodied spirits any, anyway, if it's all the same. God, does that mean like, hey, God sort of is thinking about you and is for you? And I do believe that's true. But this is saying God is going to keep being the God he's always been. And here's the unbelievable thing about God is that our sin infuriates him. Because it hurts us and it hurts others and it tells a lie about who he is, it breaks the relationship between the two of us, and it hurts the creation. God hates our sin, and he keeps wanting to be with his sinful people. Like in the wilderness, you live in your tents, and even as you just offend me, I'll live in my tent in the middle of your tents. And then go into the promised land and build your houses and live in your houses. And 
in the midst of all your houses, I'll live in my house with you. And then what is this prophecy saying? One of these days, he's going to do something that no one could have anticipated. His house is not going to be a tent, and his house is not going to be a house. He's going to come into the midst of our embodied lives. Embodied. And do you know what God gained out of becoming a man? Zero. He did it because he really loves us and he really likes us. And the God he's always been is the God who wants to be with us when we've given him every reason not to want to be with us. And you read to the end of the Bible in Revelation, and what does God say in the new earth, the happy ending of the Bible? God says, I dwell with my people now, and he's right in the middle of us. And and think about this. When he comes to dwell with us, what is it to do? It is to fight our enemy. And anybody, any Jew in that day... What, what would they have thought is the great enemy of God's people? Save us from, how would they have filled in the blank? Rome. Save us from Gentile oppression and idolatry. And the angel says, name this baby boy Jesus because he will save his people from whom? Or what? Their sin. The great enemy wasn't Rome, came and went. The great enemy is not ISIS, will come and go. The great enemy is not the United States or our culture, will come and go. The great enemy is a global system of sinfulness and rebellion against God, part of which is in here. And he's going to save you. I, I don't know how you think about God. And especially if you, if you really maybe have never read the Bible or you're just starting to read the Bible. Or maybe you've been reading it for decades. I don't know how you think or feel about God, but do you see, are you willing to see and even feel that over and over and over He keeps saying, I am to be with you. I'm not ruling you with this sovereign power from a cold, detached distance. But what I'm doing here is doing what it takes for me to be with you. And man, if if He will come be with me to fix the ugliest, evil, unattractive realities about me, He must actually love me. That is the doctrine of the incarnation. God becoming a man. I'm going to become a man. I'm going to become an actual human being to fix what you can't fix about yourself because I love you. Let me end with this. You may have heard the name Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was a British writer, brilliant woman, scholar of modern and classical languages. She was one of the first 
graduates, uh, female graduates of Oxford University. Wrote detective fiction, and she's probably best remembered for um, a, a fictional character that she created, kind of a, a, a aristocratic crime sleuth named Lord Peter Whimsey. And if you read the Lord Peter Whimsey stories, after a while there's this character that appears named Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane is one of the first female graduates of Oxford University. And she's a writer. She writes detective fiction. Hmm. And she falls in love with Peter Whimsey and she marries him. And many people have observed that as, as Dorothy Sayers wrote this character, wrote, wrote out his life, had total control over his life, wrote it out, that she fell in love with him. And she wrote herself into his story. That points the analogy would break down, but do you, do you know what the incarnation is? That God who writes out every day of our lives, He is God. He writes out all our dilemmas. He writes out all our confusion. And if that's all we had, then it would be hard to love Him. But He wrote Himself into our story to rescue us and to marry us. That's the end of the Bible. He marries us and says, now God dwells with His people. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's not just the happy ending of the universe, that's the happy ending of your life and your eternity. In the beginning of your eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are such a great God that you would not only rule us, control us, confuse us, Challenges, test us, but enter our very lives, our very humanity, and love us and rescue us, that you might be with us, that you might even marry us. We pray that you would overcome unbelief in all our hearts and grant us true faith in you and the enjoyment of you because of what your Son has done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.